I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 44. I hope you had a nice time spoiling your significant other, and if you don't have one, I hope you are suitably ambivalent to this most pointless of annual holidays. We here at the Triple F don't really feel it's necessary to pile on the Valentine's bandwagon, so you won't be getting any Valentine's-themed stories this week. No, this week we're going to run a tasty little piece of flash fiction called Older, Wiser, Time Traveller, followed by our main story, Loose in the Wires. Older, Wiser, Time Traveller was written by Matthew Bernardo. In addition to daily science fiction, Mr. Bernardo's stories have also appeared in Asimov's Science Fiction, Clark's World, Lightspeed, Beneath Ceaseless Skies, and others. He is co-editor of the Machine of Death series of anthologies and lives in Cleveland, Ohio, but people anywhere can find him online at his website. Older, wiser Time Traveller most recently ran on the Daily Science Fiction site, back on April 9, 2012. Reading Older, wiser Time Traveller is Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, actor and podcaster who can be heard as host of the Dune Steef audio fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast. He also performs audiobooks for Audible and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolfsbane blooms and the moon is full and bright. And now, we present the Amul's Bouche of this evening's one-course meal, Older, Wiser, Time Traveller, by Matthew Bernardo. First off, step one. Commit a crime of passion. You shouldn't plan this, obviously. In fact, you can't plan this. The defining characteristic of a crime of passion is precisely that it's unplanned. Oh, sure, there are tendencies. There are indications. A crime of passion doesn't have to be a surprise. 
It just has to be unplanned. Could you perhaps give us an example? All right. Say you come home from dinner, a nice dinner out with your sister. You come home to your high-rise apartment, and you find your sister's husband, your brother-in-law. You find him already there. He's ransacking your place. You never liked him. You never liked the guy, never thought he was good enough for your sister. But now he's ransacking your place. You don't know what he's doing, but he's probably looking for money or something to hawk. Maybe he thinks you have drugs hidden somewhere. But you don't ask. You don't care. This is it. This is the last thing. So you grab him by the throat, you push him out the living room door onto the balcony, and with one final cathartic explosion, you send him sailing over the railing. That's a crime of passion. Second, you need to have a time machine. It doesn't need to be anything fancy. One of those ones from the kits in the back of Popular Mechanics will do fine. But the point is that you need one. If you don't have one, then forget about it. There's nothing you can do. That's why it's a good idea just to keep one around. Just around, especially if you have a bad temper. Just keep one around. Mine's in the hall closet. <laughs> Mine too. Third, you need to get rid of the witnesses. This is one of the bad ones. You don't want to do this, so try to commit your crimes of passion in private. Or, I guess, the better way to say that is to try and keep a lid on your temper in public. Try to do that everywhere, of course, but especially when more than one person is around. Can't you just make the witnesses promise not to tell? Well, you could, but then you have to believe that they'll never tell. Never. Ever. Remember, your timeline doesn't disappear when you go back. It stays there. The witness stays there. And you're gone. If you don't come back, and you're not coming back, then eventually one day they're going to tell somebody. And if somebody turns out to be the cops, then they'll come get you. Wherever you are, even in a different timeline, they'll come get you. But take the example you gave. Look, I already said this is one of the bad ones. Uh, but what if you come back from dinner and your sister is with you? I already said, and what if she's the witness? Look, you just have to do it. But nothing says you have to talk about it later. Fourth, you go back in time. You go back before you did what you did. You go back not too far, but just far enough. You know what I mean. You want to look the same. The same hair length, the same tan, the same clothes, if you can manage it. You make everything as much the same as possible. You want to be able to remember as much as possible, too. You don't want to go back in time and blunder around like you have short-term amnesia. You want to know what's going on that day, that hour, that minute. You want to be able to just step into life and have it flow naturally. Go back a day or maybe two. Not much more than that. Maybe earlier the same day? Sure. Could be. But the other thing is you have to have a chance to get yourself alone. Alone, with nobody listening and no interruptions. Like maybe here, in the shower. Yeah, the shower is good. As long as you can get rid of... Get rid of what? Never mind. This is another one of the bad ones, isn't it? Not this one. The next one. Fifth. You don't look so good. Fifth. 
You can't even say it. I don't know how you're going to do it if you can't even say it. I told you before, you don't have to talk about it. Humor me. Talk me through it. Fifth, you have to get rid of yourself. Get rid of him. And just take over. You look really bad. You heard me, right? You didn't even bring a weapon. I'm wondering if you have any kind of plan. And what will you do with the body? There are things you can do. Humor me again. Nobody's going to report you missing. You're not missing because you took over your own life. So nobody's going to report anything. Nobody is going to look for you. You just bury it someplace where it won't be dug up. Not for a long, long time, anyway. Any more steps after that? Just one. You live with yourself. You think you can do that? If I can do all the rest, I can do that. Well, you chickened out on step five. I'm... I'm just working up my nerve. I'm getting there. Just give me a minute is all. I got a better idea. I don't care. No, listen. You came back in time to stop me from doing something you regretted. Much as we hate that no-good brother-in-law of ours, you didn't really want to throw him off the balcony. So you came back in time to take my place, the older, wiser you. The you who knows better than me. Yeah. Well, now I know. You did enough by telling me. But... But nothing. You've already killed two people. Now you want to kill one more? And you think you can live with yourself after that? I told you already. I think I got a better shot at it. Thanks for coming back and warning me. But I think I can take it from here. After all... What? I only need to kill one. Now that we've whet your appetite with a little mind-bending temporal paradox, let us move on to our main dish. We present for you Loose in the Wires by John D. Brown. John is an award-winning novelist and short story writer who currently lives with his wife and four daughters in the hinterlands of Utah, where one encounters much fresh air, many good-hearted ranchers and the occasional wolf. You can have a look at his website by following the links on the triple F. Loose in the Wires is read for us by the eminently prolific Eric Luke. Eric is the screenwriter of the 1985 Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and he wrote and directed the not-quite-human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills is currently available for free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. We'll be running a promo for interference at the close of the show, so stay tuned for that one. And now, the main course for this evening. John Brown's Loose in the Wires. Some thought my brother-in-law Delmas was unstable. I just figured he needed some trials and tribulations to help clear his vision a bit. So when he found an agricultural role in the Peace Corps, I cheered. 
I could not wait to see the changes a noble service in the third world would surely bring. Delmas came back from Botswana one year later, with a gleam of purpose in his eyes. He sat across the booth from me at an Arctic Circle in Big Pine, Wyoming. I watched him eat his bacon bounty cheeseburger in one long, concentrated go. No talking, no looking about, just earnest chewing, punctuated by a few drags on his chocolate shake. When he finally came back from whatever gustatory dimension he had slipped into, he sat back with a smile of slack joy. Was the food over there that bad, I asked. Billy boy, he said. They were feeding me on rats and grass. Then he grinned all big and goofy, and I couldn't tell if he was pulling my leg about the cuisine or the fact that he was calling me Billy Boy. He knew I preferred William or Will, but he said those names made me sound like some rich city fart, and what kind of numb nut would want that? He picked up his napkin and wiped his fingers like he was polishing silverware. Then he looked me square in the eye. Here's the deal. I wanted you to be the first to know. Know what? He motioned at me with his chin. What have you heard about the old ways? I groaned inside. You've gone and hooked up with a bunch of zombies and voodoo, haven't you? Voodoo, he said. Well, that's nothing but watered-down Caribbean crap. <sighs> Delmas, I said. He tried fighting fires, he tried college, he tried Wicca, magnet healing, evangelical radio, nudist camps, and quantum mechanics. For one week, he'd considered living on a kibbutz in Israel. He told me that something as powerful and deep as oak roots worked inside him, driving him to find the three-dimensional manifestation of the ten-dimensionality of our existence. Delmas could see my disappointment. Things have changed, he said. I ain't blowing in the wind. I just nodded. I liked Delmas. He was funny and kind. And no matter what he might sound like, he wasn't dumb. He'd gotten a 31 on his ACT exams, and he hadn't even been trying. The boy had a lot of horses under his hood, but they were never given any opportunity to show what they could do. A Lamborghini stuck in life's parking lot. Let me guess, I said. No, he said. First, you've got to hear this thing whole hog. Okay, I said. I'm all ears. He nodded, and when he'd gauged my sincerity, he leaned in close. The truth is, I've got me an African god in a smucker's jelly jar in my trunk. Then he sat back like he'd just showed me a million dollars. I see, I said. Maybe I'd been wrong about Delmas. He wasn't a Lamborghini. Heck, he wasn't even a Ford. Delmas was turning out to be a go-kart. We stood in the parking lot, and he opened the trunk of his Mustang. A woman with short, expensive hair walked out of the Arctic Circle and put on her sunglasses. She wore shorts made of some silky stuff that slid up over the tops of her thighs like they were made of glass. Delmas poked me in the ribs. Hey, I can goggle on the sly, but you, Billy Boy, you gotta keep your focus. I was married to Delmas's older sister, Jill, and married men in Delmas's family were not allowed to look. 
I had been told this by Jill's father. Men were all alcoholics of lust, and looking was nothing more than a fool bellying up to the bar. A momentary lapse, I said, and directed my attention to the contents of Delmas's trunk. Amidst the jumper cables and two quarts of pennzoil, I saw a crate, size of a toaster. It had small orange letters painted on it in French. Delmas popped off the lid, and there, nestled in the security of Botswana newspaper, sat a large jar with holes punched in its red checkered lid. Now, looky here, Delmas said, and pulled the jar out. Sure enough, it had a Smucker's label on the side. They've got Smucker's in Botswana? Billy, he said, and looked at me like I'd made another dumb city boy comment. Africa ain't stuck in the hut age. Some of those bushmen, the ranching hands, they might forget to wear anything but their loincloths, but they don't forget their cell phones. Delmas held the jar out to me. I took it and held it up close. What I saw were two beetles about the size of my thumbnail. They shined rainbow green and blue like a skiff of oil in a puddle. They were chewing on a fresh mushroom. These are your African gods? Delmas held up his hand. Now you just hear me out. About three months out, I met this skinny gui bushman named Masego. He spoke English and French and Bantu. He was a smart little man, and he still held to the old ways. Now what you have to realize is that whites and other tribes came and pushed them back. But the gui bushman, now he's been there longer than anyone else. Persistent, I said. So, our truck breaks down, and it's getting towards dusk, but we need to get to another village about eight miles away. Old Masego, he says we're going to walk. I brought up the fact that I'd seen lions out there. It was feeding time, and the two of us would make mighty good eating for a lion. But old Masego, he just smiled. I didn't want to look like some panty-waist American, so I decided to follow his lead. He was, after all, a gui bushman. So off we go. And what'd we run into? A lion, I said. Lions, he said. Lions. There were about twenty of them, some just cubs. But I saw one of them boys with a mane off in the grass giving us the eye. They were all chowing down on a hartebeest. At first I thought, cool, lions. But then they looked at me with those eyes, and I began to think, hell almighty, those are lions. Now I start to backstroke real slow, but old Masego, he tells them off, starts hucking clumps of grass at them, telling them to move off and make some room. Delmas, I said, this was the dumbest tall tale I had ever heard. If he had learned anything in his time with the Peace Corps, it was not how to lie. He raised his hand. Scout's honor. I was freaking out. So, what did you do? I couldn't wait to hear this one. What else could I do? You can't run. That's like throwing blood in shark-infested waters. So I stood there and pissed my pants. 
I've never been so scared in my life. And, well, Masego, he's taken them to task like they were nothing more than a bunch of rowdy neighborhood kids, talking, throwing weed bombs, walking right at them. I was sure one of them was going to rise up and swat the skinny bugger down, but they did no such thing. I saw it with my own eyes. The lions started to leave. One by one, they retreat back into the grass. And then Masego motions to me to come and get some meat. I looked closely at Delmas to see if he was yanking my chain. But his face was sober as a priest's. Yeah, he said. That's right. We had lion-killed hartebeest that night. There's no way, I said. Delmas just nodded. And I had to admit, his certitude was solid as stone. Later, he said, when all the adrenaline finally washed out and my pants dried, I realized those old boys down in Africa knew a thing or two. There's a lot of knowledge that's been lost in our modern world. And so I began to hang out with Masego more and more. When I told him about Andy and her aches and pains, Andy... I said, the woman who fell off the Delmas wagon about four minutes after your plane took off? How many Andes do I know? asked Delmas. I got me some clarity over there. What she wanted all along was something that would say I cared. And you decided beetles would do the trick. It ain't normal for a young girl to have arthritis. Old Masego said what she needed was a god to go to work on her. And I agreed. Delmas pointed to the jar in my hands. It took him more than two months to find the right ones. But there they are. African gods, I said, and jiggled the jar a bit. Little ones, he said. This was too much to believe. So... What do you do? Sacrifice potato bugs to them and say a few prayers? Laugh it up, Delma said and held his hand out for the jar. But I ain't the one that forked over thousands of dollars to a university for a piece of paper that says BS. No, you just bought these. How much did you pay? And how in the world did you get them through customs? Delmas raised one eyebrow and looked very sly. When I saw he was not going to reveal how much he'd been hornswoggled, nor his methods of smuggling, I handed the little deities back. So, how does it all work? I asked. The gods in the bug. Sometimes they're in other things, but this one happens to be in the bug. I've got to get it out of the bug and into me, he said. Once it's possessed me, it goes about performing Mother Nature's miracles. This sounded like a cross between Satanism and health food. And I suppose this involves a bloody devil, right? No, he said. It ain't like that. They just got to be ingested. You actually think Andy's gonna eat these? If the woman can munch chicken cartilage for her joint pains, she could throw back one of these. Of course, the other's there for me. Kind of a 
trial run to see if it actually works. Aha, I said. Even you admit it sounds kooky. Hell, Billy Boy, he said. I ain't an idiot. That evening, Delmas prepared to ingest his god. I was sitting with Jill at our kitchen table. Delmas stood by the sink. He had just sipped a number of tablespoons of vegetable oil to grease up the works. So, are you going to cook it? I asked. Nope, he said. This has got to be done raw and wiggling. I got to get it in me alive, otherwise the god might slip away, and then this all will be a big waste of money. I held back the obvious comment and looked over at Jill. There were seven kids in the Yount family, and she was the only normal one in the bunch. Delmas, Yolanda, Heber, Lavelle, Eli, Erlette, that was a girl named after her grandfather, and Jill. How she escaped the name curse, I do not know, but I figured their special personalities had begun developing in childhood as a way to bear up under the burden of those names. I wanted to say something to Jill, but she held a finger up. Don't go there, she said. You want to talk about families. I can talk about families. I wanted to point out that nobody in my family had yet stooped to worshipping bugs, but she could weigh into the discussion on this particular topic like a sledgehammer. So I just smiled, turned back to Delmas. We both knew I had won this match without having to say a word. Delmas transferred one of the beetles from the smucker's jar into a normal glass. I stepped over and peered down into the bottom of the glass with him. Saw the thing spinning its legs, trying to get a hold of the side. You're, uh, just gonna swallow it whole, I asked. That's the idea. Dilmus, I said, they've got barbs on their legs. That thing is not going down. It's gonna latch on to something. I looked back over at Jill. Wasn't she gonna say something to her brother? But Jill just gave me a look that said this was as normal as cherry pie. Who knew where that bug had been? And the enterprising natives gathered them up to sell to stupid tourists like Delmas. You can't do this, I said. This is how diseases get started. People eating things never meant for consumption. Cow brains and monkey meat. That beetle might be carrying the sister to Ebola. Delmas dismissed me with a wave of his hand. That's city talk. Nothing wrong with eating things. You just got to cook them. I pointed out that Delmas had not cooked this bug, but he didn't listen. I think I'll stun it with a little crunch, he said. Then Delmas brought up the glass. There are moments of horrid fascination when I can't look away. Moments like when Skip, the ounce dog, barfs and then eats his vomit or when I catch snakes mating on some nature program. I was having just such a moment. This was a large bug with a lot of wiggle in it. For all we knew, Delmas's friend could have found this thing living all snug and tidy in some rhino turd. Delmas jiggled the glass like he was trying to get the last piece of ice out of a soda. Then the beetle slid down toward Delmas's open mouth, on its back, legs, whirring in the air. It approached the rim. I cringed. 
And then it disappeared into Delmas's mouth. He gave it a quick crunch and gulped it down. I stood there stunned. Delmas simply had to be a different breed of human. There was no other explanation. He winced and put a hand to the valley of his neck. He gulped again a third time, and then he dashed for the fridge. Delmas, I said, you all right? Delmas didn't answer. He grabbed a gallon of milk, ripped off the lid, and began to chug. Delmas was not a tidy chugger, and a full pint must have spilled out of his mouth and onto his neck and shirt. But he got enough of it in him, evidently, to wash the beetle down his gullet, because he put the milk on the counter and took a breath. After a moment, he said, You were right. I think I should have pulled those legs off first. I can still feel him fighting it. Delmas pointed to the bottom part of his ribcage where the stomach would be. He's attempting something right there. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. For a brief moment, I wondered exactly what kind of damage a beetle might do to a man's intestines. Could it climb back out? Or would it eat its way through the stomach wall and live in the chest cavity? Then Delmas began to jump about. A dozen hops later he stopped and held perfectly still, like a man listening for a soft creak. Then he relaxed. Oh, that's got him, he said. All it took was a little acid bath. I looked at my wife. I couldn't believe what I had just witnessed. Jill, I said. But she ignored me. Delmas, she said, it's good to have you home again. Nothing noticeable happened right away. Then Delmas took to running. I'd never known him to run, but Delmas took to it like an antelope. Said he felt mucho burrito. So instead of driving the four-wheeler to check on something in his father's fields, he'd run out and back. He ran with the sheepdogs and let them taste the dust of his heels. He'd run the five miles into town and back without a second thought. 
but it didn't stop with the running. A week after the ingestion episode, he came to help me drywall part of our basement. Actually, he did the drywall, and I fetched. After he'd put up the tape and applied the first layer of mud, I sent him off. I wasn't handy, but I could at least clean up. I rolled up the plastic, swept, wiped away stray blobs of mud, and I walked out to the garage with a load of garbage to put in the can. That's when I saw Delma standing there, holding our sack of dog chow. I'd heard about people doing this, but never actually seen it. You're not eating the dog food, I said. No, I'm not, he said. I looked him up and down. There are crumbs on your face and shirt. Delmas got a deer-in-the-headlights look. The man simply didn't know how to lie. Then he recovered and held the bag out to me. Did you want some? Only Delmas. I wouldn't let him out of the garage until he told me if this is what he'd been eating in Botswana. I found out they fed him fine over there. He had only started craving dog food the day after he swallowed that bug. Of course, none of this odd behavior proved anything. I was, after all, dealing with Delmas. Craving to run and eat dog food were most assuredly some odd placebo effect, and I tried to make him see my point. After I finished my lecture, he hung his head. What were you expecting? I asked. He shrugged. But I suddenly knew. You thought this would be like some superhero story, didn't you? Spider-Man getting bit and then finding out he can climb walls. No, said Delmas. But I could see that's exactly what he'd hoped for. Nothing works like that, I said and shook my head. Come on. And I put my arm around him and figured this would be the end of it. It was not. Delmas came over one evening a few days later to strategize with Jill about Andy. And while he was sitting there, he suddenly turned to me and said, I've got a pimple the size of a walnut on my head. Really, I said. It's killing me. I need someone to check it. Don't look at me, I said, and pointed at Jill. She's your sister. Jill gave me a look. She won't do it, said Delmas. I was not fond of examining people's disgusting sores. As a child, I'd looked in the big, red, self-diagnosis medical book my parents kept. The pictures inside horrified me. That was why I'd gone into computers instead of becoming a doctor. But Delmas sat there looking like he might have a brain tumor, and this might be his last day on Earth. So I scooted over and began to pick through his hair like an obedient primate. Didn't take long to find it. It was red and angry, about the size of a marble. There was no whitehead to it, although it did have what looked like a seam running across the face. All those pictures in the family's big red book came rushing back to me. Judas Priest, I said in disgust. Other words had come to mind. But Jill had made me give all such words up during our engagement. None of the men in her family swore, she said, although I had heard notable exceptions to this rule, and she wasn't going to be the one to introduce the habit into their line. I figured marriages were like castles, made up of a lot of bricks of courtesy, good times, and sacrifice. Giving up cussing was my heap of sacrificial bricks. I now use words like 
heck, fetching, flipping, as in abso-flipping-lutely, crap, hell's bells, that one, Jill said, was iffy, good night, shoot, scrud, sugar, and poop. Sometimes I could get away with substitutes in Spanish or Czech. Some words I refused to use. Gadzooks was one of those, but holy had become a power word. Holy cow, holy moly, holy flip, holy holy. Sometimes I just made phrases up and tried them on. You can call someone a freaking raspberry tart, and if you think about it long enough, it begins to take on an air of the profane. Still, I was living in a world of words that fit, but just didn't carry quite enough punch. I had been sissified. What is it? asked Delmas. I have no idea. And then the sore opened. Let us pause and simply note that at this point I punched a noticeable hole in the wall of my sacrificial bricks. Inside, the sore was all gray and filmy, covered with some mucus-like substance. Delmas had fallen trying to climb into the tractor a few days back, and at first I thought he must have chipped out a part of his skull, and this was a part of his brain poking out. But then the sore blinked. And blinked again. I snatched my hands back in horror. What? asked Jill. The worry in her voice must have freaked Delmas. Is it a tumor? he said. He sounded like a frightened little boy. I took a breath, tried to calm myself. I don't exactly know, I said. I took another breath. If a doctor could examine these things, so could I. I mustered my courage and lifted the hair back again. I was calm, collected, and 100% sure that what I was looking at in the back of Delmas's head was an eye. We took Delmas to the emergency room. The doctor looked at it, called over another, who looked at it, and called yet another. All told, over the course of three days, I think we saw a dozen doctors. In the end, after they'd run all the tests and taken images with every machine in their arsenal, they decided to operate. They removed the eye, patched him up, and gave him the hardest antibiotics known to man. The doctor let us see the thing. It had an iris, lens, cornea, retina, and what looked to be the beginnings of an optical cord. But none of them could offer any suggestions on what had triggered its development. Delmas was told to come back in a few weeks, but we knew they didn't have a clue. They wanted to study him and write up his case for posterity. And I thought... This was a good thing. It might help any other idiot who wanted to swallow an African turd beetle to cure aches and pains modern medicine couldn't touch. The problem was that Delmas went back to the doctor two weeks later, got a clean bill of health, and then immediately began to grow another eye, this time in a different location. He revealed it to us in the wee hours of a Wednesday morning. He had a key to the house and simply came in calling out our names. We were, luckily, engaged in nothing more than a sound sleep. Delmas flipped on the lights in our bedroom and stood next to my side of the mattress with a T-shirt wrapped around his head. "'Billy boy,' 
he said, his voice all trembly. I was squinting at the light. I thought we had a deal that you'd knock. Delmas unwrapped his T-shirt. I peered up through the light, and there, just to the side of his left temple, was another eye. I'm a freaking cyclops, he said. The eye was closed, but there was no doubt what it was. I told you not to eat that bug, I said. This is some jungle disease that was only known to the ancient world, and now you've brought it back. This ain't no virus, he said. I'm hearing things in my head, like old Masego speaking his clickety-clack. We told Delmas to go back to the doctors for another surgery, but he was convinced that it was the god inside him that was doing this. Besides, he pointed out, there was no surgery to cut out the voice. I had to admit that there was more to that bug than beetle. Well, call Masego, then, I said. Maybe he's seen this before. That's why I came to you, Billy Boy, he said. I was hoping to use your phone. He looked at the clock on the wall. They're nine hours ahead. He had a phone, which meant he'd come to us for more than our one low rate. You moocher, I said, felt a swell of pity and older brotherly kindness take my heart. I waved him off with a hand. Go ahead and call. He didn't get Masego on the first try. The man had to be fetched. Obviously, Masego was not one of the phone-toting bushmen. About three hours later, Delmas called again, and this time Masego was among the crowd at the other end. Delmas carried on about all his woes, and then, when it was Masego's turn, Delmas just nodded and said, Yeah, yeah, yeah. The upshot of the conversation was that there were good gods and tricky ones and others that were simply mean. You couldn't know which was which until they possessed you. This one happened to fall into one of the latter two categories. Of course, Masego had supposedly explained all this back in Botswana, but Delmas, being Delmas, had simply ignored the risks. Masego told Delmas it was very simple. He couldn't kill the god, but he could entice or drive it out of his body and into something else that gods liked. Things like dogs, ancient trees, and lightning. It was going to take chanting and clapping and some special trance dance. When Delmas explained it all, I said, You don't have any training as a witch doctor. Oh, now we got us a believer? asked Delmas. Nothing of the sort, I said. Then what? he said. You want to send me back to the regular medicine men? What new things are they going to try? No new things. That was obvious. I just stood there and shrugged. Exactly, Mr. Higher Technology, said Delmas. I just got me instructions from a pro, and I want to give them a whirl. Are you going to help, or get out of the way? Why not? We were, all three of us, bright and consenting adults. Might end up being a journal moment. I'm not doing any drugs or weird crap, I said. All you got to do is clap and grunt, he said. Then he motioned to the couch. Why don't you grab a hold of the other end and we'll move it against the wall? We couldn't find a handy dog. 
Yes, we have a little terrier, Mr. Smee, but he is not a dog, really. We did not think it humane to dognap someone else's pet, and the animals at the shelter didn't count. Buying one for this dance felt too much like a Nazi medical experiment. I wasn't going to have the neighbors gawking as Delmas did this thing around a tree. So Delmas decided on lightning. Lightning, I asked. I looked outside at the clear, bright sky. Delmas held a screwdriver in his hand. He walked over to our kitchen light switch, unscrewed the switch cover, and revealed the guts of my house. Then he pointed at the wires there. One twenty volts! Delmas, I said. I glanced over at Jill. I could see a little worry in her face. I was not a handyman, but even I know you didn't go grabbing live wires in your house. That will kill you, won't it? He grinned that you-dumb-city-boy grin. There's a chance, he said. It just might light me up like a Christmas tree. We helped Delmas make a number of pinto bean rattles. He used a marker to write our chant out phonetically on the back of a blue flyer advertising furnace cleaning. The rite required fire, so we dipped into Jill's stockpile of scented candles. And that's how we started, me and Jill sitting in the middle of the living room floor with sunflower and bayberry candles burning on a plate between us. We read out our chants, and Delmas danced circles around us. Masego had said it sometimes took a full night of dancing for the healing trance to fill a man up inside. After about twenty minutes, I didn't think my arms had a snowball's chance of clapping and rattling for more than an hour. But we sometimes surprise ourselves in our extremities. We chanted, and Delmas danced for more than four hours. He danced through dinner and sunset and into the dark night. At about eleven o'clock, he stopped. I'm just about crazy, he said. I think it's time. We were all sweating and in pain. Delmas put on my rubber boots. Then he walked over to the exposed light switch and looked at me. If I grab a hold of this thing and don't let go, you got to be prepared to pull me off. I stood. Whatever you say. Delmas turned back to the switch. All right, you funky little bugger. Here's some tasty lightning. Delmas put his left hand behind his back. Then he reached out with his right hand, his thumb and forefinger on either side of the box. When he put his thumb on the exposed copper of the black wire, he scrunched up his face, but he didn't let go. The muscles on his arms stood out. The light in the room seemed to dim. Then Delmas's head flipped back with a jerk, and I thought he was going to yell, but nothing came out. Delmas! I said, how was I supposed to know when to pull him off? We watched in horror for a few moments at Delmas's silent scream. His hair began to lift, and then his voice kicked in like a bullhorn. His shout broke our spell. Will, Jill said, and I could hear in her voice that this wasn't right at all. I reached for Delmas. The light in the room brightened, but before I could pull him off, there was an enormous pop, like a mighty discharge of static electricity. Delmas flew through the air. Then the fixture above me sparked and plinked, and everything in the house went dark. Even the candles had blown out. I heard Delmas thump to the floor. Jill and I both dropped to our knees and fumbled about trying to find him, when we located him, trying to see if he was moving. 
Is he breathing? Jill asked. I felt my way to his head. Then I licked my hand, put it close to his mouth and nose. I couldn't feel his breath. Put my ear to his chest. Is he breathing? Shush, I said. I listened. And then I caught it. He's got a beat, I said. Come on, Deli, Jill said. Come on. We knelt there for what must have been ten minutes, blathering to Delmas and wondering what we had just done. We never even thought of calling 911. What would we say? Then Delmas stirred and rolled over. I'm blind, he said. I can't see. It's the lights, I said. You tripped the breakers. I heard him breathe a sigh of relief. Then he groaned and said, I can hardly feel my arms. But I think we got him. I felt something go. He felt something. There was no doubt about that. We all fell silent, and moments later, I heard a noise coming from some corner of the house. What's that sound? asked Delmas. It was Chuck Berry playing in the bedroom. That must be our clock radio, I said. You must have tripped it. But it doesn't have any batteries, said Jill. Then it would be out, like everything else. Even in the dark, I could see her pause and set herself to defend her point. It doesn't have batteries, she said. Jill, I said. I'll go flip the switches, and we can all see. I went downstairs and reset all the breakers. The lights all came back on, and I walked back upstairs. Delmas and Jill moved to the bedroom. He was bug-eyed and a bit askew. The arm he touched the wire with hung like a wet noodle at his side. Jill held the clock radio up for me to see. She had taken the battery cover off, and there was nothing inside. But that can't be, I said. You stay here with Delmas, she said. Plug it back in. I'm going to flip all the breakers off. I did. And when the lights went out, the radio played on like we were linked directly into the Hoover Dam. How in the world, said Delmas. Then he fumbled for the lamp on the drawers with his one good arm, followed the cord, unplugged it from its socket, and then plugged it into this one. The lamp flickered, and then glowed softly in the darkness. We stood there in silence. It had to be the result of some jerry-rigged wiring. It's in there, he said. Maybe Jill didn't trip the right breaker, I said. Billy boy, Delmas said, and looked about the shadows. Electricity don't work like that. Then the lamp and radio faded, and we heard and saw it move down the house. That's the only way to describe it. First, the master bathroom light flickered. Then the hall light switched on and off again. The blender revved at what sounded like frappe. The microwave dinged. Another flicker down the hall. Then all was silent and dark. Holy crap, said Delmas. I hadn't really believed this would work. It was just going to be another Delmas moment. But now all my tidy explanations failed me. Pull them out, I said. Delmas didn't move. The appliances, I said, everything. Pull them out. It was in the house. 
It was in the wires. I began calling out the appliances room by room. I yelled down to Jill to pull the plug on the washer and dryer downstairs. The last thing I wanted was that thing lurking in the toaster. When we had pulled anything with a cord, I went back and tested the clock radio in the bedroom. It would not work. I tried it in half a dozen other plugs, but in each it was dead and dark. I unplugged the radio from the last socket. It's still here, isn't it? asked Jill. We're going to flip the breakers, I said. And whatever it is, we'll hopefully find its way out of the house wiring. All three of us walked downstairs and flipped the breakers. The lights came back on. And we waited a very long time. I was speechless. But Delmas wasn't. I don't think I'm going to give that other one to Andy, he said. Good idea, I said. No, he said. I'm keeping it. He paused. I think I finally know my calling, he said. I'm going into electrology. I'm going to bust these buggers wide open. I paused for a moment. Electronics, I said. Nope, he said. Electrology. I don't think that's a word, I said. I know there's no such major at the university. <laughs> Billy boy, he said, there will be when I finish. I guarantee. Electrology. The study of electrical gods. Who knew where such a study might lead him? And at that moment, I realized that while Delmas was not a Lamborghini, he wasn't a go-kart either. I looked at him with newfound respect. Delmas was some experimental vehicle that just might be the one to take us all in a whole new direction. The operation to take out Delmas's second Cyclops eye won Andy's heart. While he was recovering, she came to visit, and he told her the whole story, and showed her the eyeballs he kept in a solution in a pickle jar. Andy decided that was the grossest, most tragic, most romantic story she'd ever heard. I suppose his afflictions had made him into some kind of noble-hearted doofus. She just happened to be a sucker for that kind of man. I have refrained from pointing out to Delmas what such an oddly fickle woman might bring to a marriage. Jill, of course, used the seeming fact that Delmas had been right about the Beatles all along to muddy the waters of our discussion about the quality of our family lines. Me? I tell them all I don't know what to think. Sometimes I lie awake at night, looking at the lamp, the red lights of the clock radio, and the dark holes and slots of the wall sockets, wondering if it's still there, or if it's gone hunting on the public grid for whatever it eats, uncertain if it would return from such a foray. Heaven forbid it should multiply. This I know. A small disaster's coming down the line. You simply can't have a god running loose in the wires. And when it breaks, I'll be pinning my hopes on a hick with some dark horses under the hood.
and why shouldn't gods come in all sizes? A god is as likely to occupy a beetle as it is to occupy a multi-limbed elephant-headed portly fellow. I certainly make no judgment here. Gods clearly come in all shapes and sizes. And dispositions. It seems you should be wary of what you are tricking a god into occupying. Sometimes I think my computer has a god in it. Or perhaps that's a devil. Never quite sure. Enough talk of gods. Let us instead take a moment to give praise to the generosity of the authors and narrators who make far-fetched fables possible. And remind you, our faithful listeners, that the Triple F operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative License 3.0, which means you can download the content and share it around, but you can't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website and very easy to use. Even I can do it. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any other topic that comes to mind, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website. And remember, do be cautious of the motivations of your future self. Don't take lightly the potential power and maleficence of even the tiniest gods. You have yourself a great week. Bye now. Something wants in to your head. Through this audiobook. Interference by Eric Luke. An experiment in meta horror. Available at quillhammer.com. Just click play. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.